Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. Today, I'm very fortunate to have McGay Baker back in the uh, virtual studio here to mm-hmm. continue our conversation from, uh, not last week, but the but the week before. So hi, McGay. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Oh, it's uh, it's a real. Uh, I feel really lucky to have you uh, uh, a second time because we sort of got to some interesting spots last time, and and hopefully we can delve into some some stuff related to uh, your design and and what it's like to be a a female uh, game designer. But before we do that, um, we talked a little bit last time about you know about game design um, and sort of the ideas behind how you put a game together. So I think I probably know the answer to this question, but if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? Mm, if I could, uh, I think if I could, uh, gosh, that's a really tough question. If I could only be a player or only be a GM. Well, if I take it as uh, assumed that I can play or run a wide variety of games. Sure. I I think I might say player this evening right and why is that right um right now the there's a great desire and interest and part of why we play role-playing games is to uh, lose ourselves in a story it is to inhabit some other aspect of ourselves or something completely unlike ourselves um there is as we all must acknowledge a level of escapism to playing Uh, and it's to be the GM one holds a a different space Uh, there's so I guess this is because this is the fourth sort of tightly scheduled thing I've had to do today right sure (laughs) so for right now like can I just not be responsible for all the details right fair enough yeah there is a certain (laughs) element of that and being a play you know you get to just relax and so you roll up and you go you know that's awesome I I get a chance to just you know just take it easy but um if you were going to be a player what sort of preparation do you do as a player okay the preparation that I do for uh, okay so Give me a game. What game are we playing? Uh, you are going to play... Hmm, a call Marvel, of, okay, go ahead. Let's go with um, Marvel Heroic. Sure. Okay? Yep. So um, I'm sitting down to play a game of Marvel Heroic, and the preparation that I would do for that would be to look at the world. You know, what interests me in this world? Um, I'm assuming this is like pre-character generation. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, you're just sort and, of mentally preparing yourself. Yep. Yeah. What am I interested in in this world? What am I interested in seeing about uh, how... Okay, so what's interesting in this world? There's super uh, superpowers. Pe- people have strange, wacky powers. That's cool. What does this say to me about the human experience? Um, and how do those two things intersect? And I want to be playing a character at the intersection of right. whatever's intriguing about the world and how I... And what part of the human experience I'm looking I'm looking at and interested in exploring right. uh, within that world, um, and that's 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 the sort of academic analytical part of character preparation for me. Right. A lot of it is also the complete flip side, which is, all right, I'm playing a character. What's out there? And it's just a process of opening my brain to the gaming ephemera that float around uh-huh. and um say all right uh what wants to what do i want to play what's what's out there like oh well it's a they're a cab driver and um they're of haitian uh, Im- they're a haitian immigrant immigrant they're driving a cab um there's some sort of time control issue so it's it's just totally off the cuff sure stuff right um then if I'm if it's a character that I'm coming back to, like this is our second or third or tenth session, mm-hmm. then even as a player now, it's so ingrained in me to look at uh, what my relationships are with other characters, the you know, relationship web, the relationship map, right. however you term it, to see 
what's where are the where are the angles? What are the interesting questions? You know, where can I poke or, or pull on a, right. a, a little uh, interesting cross between my character and another person's character or, or uh, another NPC? Right. Um, and you know, it comes back to Apocalypse World and how can I make my character's life not boring because hmm. you, know, sure. you know i've ha- i've been in games where i've watched people role play eating dinner right and it wasn't a very charged dramatic situation like they were literally playing well this is a really good steak <laughs> and you know it's like, that's so that's that's the thing of like uh if i'm in the game if i'm going along like all right what's interesting yeah uh, we just we just wrapped up a game of monster hearts it was fantastic fun oh my god the fun of that and with that there was a ton of uh speculation between sessions of myself and other players going oh what's gonna happen oh hmm. i know this thing i've been thinking and maybe there's this other thing and you know all that stuff to prepare myself mentally to inhabit that space again right. uh, and figure out what comes next and as part of that preparation then trying to find a way to make your players your your character's life uh sort of wound up in the other character's lives so that it creates a a more cohesive not necessarily cohesive unit but a story that involves sure. all of the people or yeah because well stories are about uh connectivity between people and between people in their environment Mm -hmm. uh if you're having a story that is about one person having their solo experience those are great stories i love reading those stories but Mm. I, i love experiencing those stories when i'm in them but the communal social aspect of sitting down with another person or a group of people to play a role-playing game is sort of um, uh, perpendicular to that sort of, I'm just here doing my thing. Mm. Um, I've seen it work. I've seen people do that and do it well. Uh, The whole concept of dollhousing where we're all in this world and, you know, it's, I don't know. It's Call of Cthulhu, and sure. we're we're doing a thing, and it's spooky, and I have this journal that I'm constantly scribbling in, and I'm having this great experience of gaming, right? Drawing little sketches of the monsters and the other players, and writing little notes, and it's not really part of the communal fiction, right. but I'm present and I'm there and I'm engaged. I'm just also having this other experience. That's fine, right? Um, the place where that tips to a different—I uh, don't know if I don't know if we have a great word of it in the current lexicon of game design, where it's not dollhousing, where like we're all together, and then I'm just I'm just doing a little thing while we're hanging out, just like knitting, like I'm just going to hang out here and knit this thing right. while we play. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part is where, you know, okay, we're playing Siren. There's the four runners, and we have a a clear objective, which is to get over there and get that thing. And Hmm. someone else, someone says, I'm going to go that way. Hmm. And they just take off. Okay. You know, if you're doing that in a way that is within the fiction and you are engaged as a player with the other players and you are all making sure that your stories are interesting to one another so that you're not sitting there bored while someone else is talking. Right. Because, you know, we've all been in situations where like that happens. Um, as long as you're finding ways to contribute and make each other's lives interesting, do your own thing. Yes. But that that hinges on that we do have connectivity. Otherwise, why are we in the same situation? Like the whole old D&D standard chestnut of you meet in a bar. Mm. You're adventurers, you're trying to make some money, and you meet in a bar to get hired by the man in the corner with the the hood over his eyes right um and the dark cigarette glowing um mm. you know you have a reason to be together yes if you, if if there isn't at least that thread of connectivity that you have a reason to be together it starts to stretch like why 
yeah. what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> why, oh, yeah. why? Yeah. So. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I've uh, that I, I notice is a you know a hallmark of, of of some games, you know, Apocalypse World, Fiasco, um, stuff like that, where there is a real emphasis on trying to create the connections between the between each of the players, and yeah. and by doing so. Um, making sure that there's everybody's always involved at at all times, and there's no need to reinforce the conceit that we do actually all want to go in the same mm-hmm. in the same direction, right? No, this the right. meet, meet in the tavern and, and go and and kill right. the orcs type 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 stuff. Mm-hmm. But along with that, um, I guess depending on the particular type of of player that you have, if you are going to play true to the character that you've created, mm-hmm. uh, then you know, if you're going to play really true, then maybe you're going to just split up and and leave anyway. Which is why I sort of was getting to the with the question. You know, like what sort of preparation do you and do you try to find connections? Is like do you do you actively seek out? I know it's sort of a conceit and it's not necessarily, you know, part of the game, sort of a meta gaming idea, but to try to make sure that your stories overlap as much as possible. So there's always people involved to make sure everybody's having a good time. Um, making sure everybody's having a good time, yeah, but I don't think that the the I would I would back off from that point a little. Like I'm not mm-hmm. feeling like it needs to be hyper connected. There's just uh, there's two things that come up with that. One is, you know, you got to bring your fun to the table too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to bring my part of the fun, mm. and I'm going to bring it as hard as I can. But mm. you got to bring your part of the fun too. I'm not responsible for bringing your fun to the table. Right. Um, even even as a designer, like. As a designer, I am bringing all the fun to the table that I can. Right. And if you come to the table and be like, you know, well, I'm really not into, um, I'm really not into superpowers, and you know, I'm I'm just trying to fill some time before whatever else it is that's happening. Right. Okay, whatever. We can play I run, mm. but if if you don't step it up and bring all the fun that you can bring. Yes, and maybe I'll win you over, and you'll be like, "Oh my god, this is awesome! Where can I buy this game?" And I'll be like, "Come to my website." Right. But um, so that's the one point is that there is a bit of a a flag there. If mm. if if I as a player uh, observe in myself, or if I observe other people at the table becoming really overly concerned that other people are like, "Oh, I got to make sure other people other people are having fun." Mm-hmm. Okay. As a GM, it is my job to make sure that screen time, people, you know, people get a chance to talk. Sure. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I do have to pay attention to that. Right. Uh, but also, you got to show up with the fun. And if mm. you're just going to not, you know, if you're not going to bring that, there's only so many times I can come to you and say, all right, so what do you want to do? I'm totally here, ready for you to be awesome. And I want to support that in every way. And if you're like, well, I'm just going to like sit in my room and drink in a melancholy manner right. Like, all right great that's what you're doing yeah, I'm, gonna s- I'm gonna sit up and eat a delicious steak okay whatever <laughs> that makes you happy that makes you happy uh what if it's just my character that my character would go off and do this my char- character's a loner you know and i would totally go off and try to do this other thing by myself and forget all you guys right okay that's cool also using well it's what my character would do is a total craptastic excuse for poor behavior mm-hmm. you know i agree <laughs> whatever um it's fine like there's great things that you know, like, okay i'm gonna we're all if we're playing uh, old school D and everybody's trying oh there's a magical object thing i'm like i'm gonna pick up the magical staff if nobody stops me oh i don't know should we do that but I'm just going to do this. Is anybody stopping me? I don't right. know. I don't know. Okay, I pick it up. And that's that's not a a crap thing to do mm. because I am I'm I wasn't just like going off I'm like, "Oh, I go grab it and I book out of there." Right. I'm engaging the other players and yes. I'm announcing and I'm telegraphing broadly to them. Yeah. Here is a thing. Do you want to do that and it was awesome you know i picked up this magical staff the ceiling started collapsing in on us it was cool the other player this actually happened in my game in high school uh, <laughs> and then the other i was playing a kender right. um the other players were like oh my god and like finally they had a sense of direction because i was sensing a 
there was like actual going on where nobody was making a choice. And I'm right. like, I- I'm going to make a choice here and mm. it's totally in character for me. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing is like, don't use, well, it's what my character would do as an excuse to circumvent the party and sort of cut, cut through other people's fun there's an interesting thing here a side note that um in terms of staging i find that a lot of directions from work in theater really apply no surprise you know we all know this but being mindful of other people's story arcs yes is really good and matters as a player Mm -hmm. to be a good player um, and this is why I think as a GM, it's important for me to make sure everybody gets a ter- turn to talk pretty regularly. So, and yeah. so everybody's really engaged. And it's why as a player, I want to make sure that I'm bringing the fun and I'm making your life not boring also. Like, yes. I'm not responsible for your fun, mm. but that's why the connectivity. I'm going to call in, like, I'm going to call on, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, I don't know, Daniel, what do you think we should do? That's you know? right. Yeah. Because I want to. I want there to be interest in a, a joint way so right. that I'm not doing my thing. And then and I've been, it's just me and the GM. We've been talking for half an hour and you're like, uh, I, I go do this thing and right. wind up cutting across this because you've tuned out because right. it's boring to sit there unless it's really interesting. Yes. So it's my job as a player to bring that, like I want to be, right. inter- I want it to be interesting. It, it should be interesting for the people who are sitting there to watch too, because otherwise, it's rude. It's right. just rude. Yeah, and there's a lot to be said for being a generous player as well. If you, um, in, a, in a gaming situation, you have the opportunity to set up one of the other people at the table, particularly somebody who's perhaps new to role playing or is, mm-hmm. is just sometimes struggles with like getting out front. You know, to, mm-hmm. to create to create situations where they get an opportunity to uh, apply their skills or whatever way you think it's best to, to get them involved. So, you know, being yeah. a generous player is is something that's that's worth considering because you're trying to tell a, a, a you know a collaborative story and sometimes people require a bit of setup a great tool for this is the step up step back tool which is primarily uh it's it's a non-verbal cue and it's very natural to a lot of people and they don't even realize they're using it but there's actual words for it step up step back is um a, a tool you know comes from way other circles in my life doesn't matter point is if we're in a game and i recognize Oh, I've been talking a lot. Like I've just had, I've been really in it. Oh, like, I've been right in it. And it's all, and I'm rolling dice, and it's all cool, and awesome stuff is happening, and I'm wow. And then I, at some point, realize, oh wait a minute, I've I've been totally in the zone and totally just talking. I'm going to do a little subtle thing, and I do it with myself because I use this. I just like, oh, I'm going to put my hand, just turn my hand, palm down on the table, on my knee. On, on the couch to recognize I'm stepping back. My mm. heart's at a close. And you'll see people do this all the time because they just like, and that ends that. And they put their hand down on the table and then mm. it's someone's turn. Right. The other side of that is a step up where you put your hand out towards someone and you just, it, you're inviting someone to talk. Right. We all do this. We know what it is. It's like, oh, what would you like to say? You know, right. could you? It's a way of directing attention and uh, invitation to talk. And we can do this very effectively with people who have not spoken lately mm. to say, what do you want to say? And it directs the attention of the group to recognize, oh, you know, Jody hasn't said anything in 20 minutes. Let's hear from what her character is doing. Right. And if we recognize these as players, that these are actual tools that we're actually already using, step up, step back, and we can uh, incorporate those as cues to ourselves and to each other that, oh, I'm done talking. I've talked a lot. Um, we're going to let someone else talk for a bit. Right. It ties in exactly to what you were saying about being a gracious player. Which makes a fun game. If you have a game mm. of gracious players who are bringing bringing their own whole, like all the fun they can, mm-hmm. they're going to have fun playing anything. Right, absolutely. They're, yeah. they're going to have fun turning Monopoly into a role playing game as right. they go around the board. Yes, you know, because for sure. they're bringing it. You know. Right, absolutely. So, as a as a female game designer, I've, I've talked about this before. Like the gender ratio um, <laughs> overall, I think is about about one to, to three, like maybe 25 yeah. to 33%, something like that, girls girls to guys. And within that, 
um, again, in, in my experience, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this, the number of females that are uh, RGMs is not dis- is not proportionally represented. So, for example, if, say, two out of four male players are GMs, then mm-hmm. the quantity of female players that are GMs is not 50%. It's like, in my experience, it's like 10% or, or one of the one of the, the rarest of rare creatures is a, is a female GM. Now, I've, I've talked about this before in, um, mm-hmm. in terms of why that might be, um, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what uh, what your opinions are of that. And then I'm going to go to game designers, which again is sure. a female game designers, which is again <laughs> another, another super rare step above that. So, okay, let's break it down. Your question about why there are fewer female GMs or fewer female players well i mean if you've got a theory about fewer female players i think i know the female players one but but i'd I'd be interested to hear what you thought about that too go for it um well this is something you can find in a a, a bunch of places online um gaming is women and a whole bunch of other places about barriers to play um about people who for for whatever reason and there's a whole host of reasons uh, got told in their experience that this was not for them right um and you know that's a thing uh, to overcome. And some women do and some women don't. I think that, by and large, uh, there are, I don't know, it's, I, I, am, I think there's a lot more women players than people think. Mm. I think that there continues to be a, a pattern of, you know, there's no, there's, there are unicorns where there's no women players. I, in my community, there are more women than men playing right. games um, right. locally. I have talked to like people in the industry. I, Margaret Weiss, uh, in the interview that I did with her for Gaming's Woman, talked about this, talked about being part of the industry years ago. And that time when she was like, wow, there's suddenly we're here. There, There's women everywhere. Right. And... I think that the, I think it's, representation is an issue, and I don't want to back away from that or Mm. apologize for that, because it's true, women are underrepresented. Yes. But we are also around, and Mm -hmm. we've always been around. Yes. So the, the question then becomes, what is the visibility issue that people that 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 men and that you know some women and and the the media that surrounds the the hobby persists in having women be these sort of rare creatures that aren't actually that are not actually part of the hobby and oh my gosh they showed up and you know this past year almost has been filled with this uh, right. online you know, of talking about over and over in many, many places, recognizing this is this is a thing. You know, women are in all these games everywhere. Women are, women play first person shooters like mad. Mm-hmm. Women play games where they just can we just beat a thing up? Right. You know? Sure. Ah. <laughs> you know, there's this whole thing that I've been encountering recently of uh uh people thinking that somehow you run differently for women as opposed to men right? or that you run a different type of game for women that you like, Oh, I would never run dogs in the vineyard for women. I'm like, what? Or whatever, you know? Um, So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to a degree. Yeah, I think, um, I think that it can be, I think that is a way to to look at it Um, in terms of players and in terms of GMs. Um, There's there's a lot of good women GMs, but I still wind up you know, we still wind up with with stories and experiences of of people women running games at conventions and having you know showing up to run the table and people going isn't it supposed to be a guy right yeah that still happens it sucks yeah I would be like well no and you know you can stay or not but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um. So yeah, it's. I think there is some self self perpetuating stereotype there, and right. definitely having um, having. Here's the thing that can help. All right, if people want there to be more women gamers and more women game designers and more games out there that people are playing, um, and they want more games from women designers, 
here's the thing they can do. Play games written by women and talk about them enthusiastically in public spaces. Right. You know, not if you had a crappy time, you know. <laughs> That's, yeah. But, you know, if you're like, oh, we played, we played Siren and I have real problems with this game. That's okay. You know, I don't mind having a problem with the game. Mm-hmm. All conversation is good conversation. Yes. But holy cow, like if you want there to be more games by women, play the games that are out there that are written by women. Right. And if you're enthusiastic about them, tell people. Yes. Because that, that, that becomes a self-perpetuating uh, cycle. On the other way, where, wow, there's more and more and more games written by women. And there's more and more and more women players and women GMs. And, oh, my God, this is a thing happening. So here's another little funny side note. Um, in the 80s, there was a hugely popular, widely distributed through, like, bookstores and things like that, uh, murder mystery uh, industry. In terms of like how to host a murder and mm. all they were they were parlor larps yes um, themed around a murder mystery yes most of them were written by women yeah most of them and they they were not they were not happy sweet gentle ones <laughs> like not sure. there's murder there's there's affairs there's illegitimate children there's mm. brutality between siblings yes. you know we are not kidding around um, and. It's funny looking at the history of the hobby and going, you know, that's that is a simultaneous path mm. in which play, women have always been involved yes. in playing. It's just maybe it doesn't look like what you, where you're looking mm. at you being the you know the guy gamer who's going what where is this going you know because if you're looking at that tradition of like it being D and D or whatever system groups or whatever came next you know first of all there were women in all those too but beyond that maybe it wasn't there mm. maybe it's here doing something else entirely differently sure and these were things that were played primarily with people who were not gamers it was have a have a dinner party have people over play this game right you know they were one shots um and they were designed for a long evening so mm. the social footprint was very small yes you have you were not committing to the next 50 weeks of right. saturday night we're going to get together and we're yes. be dwarfs or whatever right. um social footprint was much more manageable in, a, in the context of a life yes and they were there they're still mm-hmm. there so you mentioned the um the fact that there are women that like first person shooters and, and all that um and all those sorts of things that are traditionally associated with being things that uh, that men like um Taking a look again at uh, a sort of a stereotype, but I mean most stereotypes derived from you know common experience, uh, accurate or otherwise. Do you think that there is a particular type of game, or at least a way that you could make a game more uh, friendly or more um, enticing to uh, a female player? Or because the the the, the Again, stereotype: women are better with social things. They're more socially advanced. They're more social. They're social, social, social. Um, do you think there's anything in that? Would are games designed by women have? Do they have more emphasis on that? And if you want to entice female players, do you want to incorporate larger social elements in your in your games? I don't think so. I think that you want to be looking at: can they design? Can can your player? Can your prospective player? who's a a woman she's 22 um she's got a job um she's out of college you know can she find herself in your game Mm. is 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 the cover to your game going to invite her to pick it up because you know she could maybe be in that game right if you have a cover if if on the cover you have a, a you have cover art because really like that's what grabs your eye, right? Mm-hmm. And if on the cover you have a woman who's being objectified and in insufficient armor, and it's just it's ridiculous, maybe not. Right. You know, if you have a woman on the cover who's obviously a total badass, mm-hmm. you're okay, right? Or you know, yeah. So figure that's your first thing. Second right. thing is, can your prospective player make a whole character that that 
you know, it's not saying things like, oh, well, if you, if you make a woman character, you're going to have to, you're, you won't be able to carry as much. You know, encumbrance rules. Yes. Sure. And that's the thing where we have, like, there's a whole argument we'll just take as read about simulationism versus narrativism with mm. Gaveism in right. that. And, you know, why, why that, you know, that, that creates problems there. Um, but if you're looking to design, I don't think you need to be designing necessarily things that are more touchy feely and more um, social. I think that those should be a part of all games. Yes. I, you should be designing games where your players can create whole characters. Um, there's a very interesting thing about the presumption that women are um, more socially uh, connected right. and have more sort of uh, the other how other people feel is more important to them and all that sort of thing. Um, there's been studies done, which I because we're in a totally different world right, right now in this conversation, but somewhere I could find them. Studies done on uh, infants' uh, stress response. Right. Infant, little little infant boys uh, have a, are much, their, their stress response to other people's uh, um, uh, like discomfort and things like that is generally higher. Right. Uh, Infant boys are very, very emotionally connected and responsive to the uh, ways that other people around them are feeling. Um, they, they, it's just we we have become conditioned and um, culturally sort of instructed to feel that that is that they just you know that they're um, sort of they cry easily or they're, you know, they're just m more noisy or more fussy or because they're boisterous and full of energy or, or whatever. We've cultured that in a way that fits in with the stories we're telling about gender. Yes. But, um, it's not actually true. Um, self-fulfilling again. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Self-fulfilling again. So the idea that you have to sort of, soft pedal your game or make it more more introspective more about getting along you know meh, meh, eh. so <laughs> and also all right so apocalypse world a game that i totally love here's the the here is the part that might matter it matters to me at least so you know your mileage may vary all of you other women listening to this but um to me I don't want to be at odds with the other other PCs in the room from the get-go. Right. It's fine with me if that if that develops over the course of play. Right. Uh, but I want to be at the the baseline that we are not openly antagonistic. Mm. Um. So I w I want that to start from. Right. Just from me. Right. You know, um, if that if that means that I like games where everybody gets along and it's all sweet, you know, that first of all, that's patently not true. <laughs> and second of all, um, so be it. I just I don't want to I want to develop into the part where I'm going to stab you in the back. Right. I don't want to start out with you trying to stab me in the back. Right. And I that that's not fun. For yeah. Me. Sure. The journey of discovery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show for you? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but you're watching it. Wow, that's cool. I want to play a game like that right now. Okay. Most in... Mm. So, a TV show that I would like to play. Or, or a film or something like that. You just watch it and go, wow, that's really cool. I want to, I want to play that. Or perhaps even a, even a book that you, you read. I've, I've told the story before, but I'll, I'll quickly give you a for instance. Um, I, uh, my mother told... Um, my, my father is from uh, England. My mother's from New Zealand, and uh, they they met in New Zealand because my my father's uh, father was was a headmaster at a school, and they met at university because he was going to university there. And uh, he had to go back, and and she went over on a boat. And one of the things uh, that she did when she was on the boat heading over to to England from New Zealand, which is a pretty long trip, is they stopped in uh, Japan and they went to um, Kyoto, where the emperor's uh, palaces and all of you Japanophiles out there. If I got that wrong, I just I just don't <laughs> care. Um, but anyway, so she went to where the Empress Palace was, and she um, went to a room which is uh, where it was 
the the nightingale floor or, or something like that. Any, anyway, um, and when you step on the floor, um, it makes the the sound of like birds. But the, right, right, but, right. But, but but the advantage of this was that nobody could sneak up on you. Now I don't know how how true that piece is, but that that didn't really matter because that when she told me that story, that sort of sparked something which I wrote a whole game based on just that yeah. that one thing because I thought about you know who would have a floor like that nowadays, and I thought about this this woman who was a mage mm. and, and so on and so forth, and so it developed. So that was just one little thing that just that set me going. Do you have anything like that currently that's sort of inspiring you? Wow, I just want to get into that right now. Okay, so I went to, when I was in Seattle for PAX, I went to the King Tut exhibit, um, and it was the last stop in the U.S. before that uh, collection of Egyptian antiquities returned to Egypt. They may never come out again. Who knows? Right. Um, that is, it's, it's a fire right now. Like, mm. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but... It was astonishingly um, inspiring. Um, right. in, so that's not a film or TV show, no, but that, it's fine. definitely an experience of, mm. of well. And there were films in it. You know, watching watching the old grainy black and white footage of um, the folks uncovering King Tut's tomb, right. and you know those people's lives. Oh my God! I, I'm like yes, and and then all the artifacts of the the ancient Egyptians. I was like, this is a world I I am intrigued with. So yes. that definitely that's a big one. Um, this kind of belies that like the how much I how little television I watch. Um, yeah, I've always thought um, Paul Anderson wrote a, a series of books. Um, the little fuzzy and fuzzy sapiens and things like that. And I, right. I really liked those. I thought they were interesting. Um, I'm a huge elf quest fan. I'm still not giving you a film or TV show. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Inspiration's really what Fraggle I'm interested in. Fraggle rock would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> the trash heap yeah. has spoken. <laughs> I, you listen to Marjorie, man. She'll set you straight. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to watch that on on Saturday and Saturday mornings with the doozers and all that. I remember the episode where where somebody was talking about how mean it was they're eating all of the doozers. Um, the buildings. Gets on, big, on it, Moki gets on this big kick that they shouldn't eat doozer constructions because it's mad. It's terribly um, terrible for them, and she doesn't know that they depend on them. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah, so a whole, like there's a moral Egypt. lesson there about ecosystems, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> so, so yeah, yeah. Those would be my big things that are most like the the uh, King Tut exhibit is the thing that's really I I want to figure out if there's something there that I can do, um, and uh, and Fraggle Rock and <laughs> yeah, between the two, quite a like, yeah, that's that's right. It might be hard to incorporate both. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could become a character in a role playing game, uh, what would it be and uh, why? And that means you like. You couldn't. You don't just pick up the game and you can play it because you can do that anyway. But suddenly, yeah. you know, reality tilted on its head and you found yourself in a game somewhere doing something. Oh God. Okay. So there's two answers for that. One would be, um, I would, I would still like to be my Shadowrun character, Cyberpunk. I think it was Cyberpunk that we were technically playing, um, Jack, because he was awesome. But I don't want to live in that world because it was some scary, scary shit. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Self-preservation um, features in this question quite prominently from time to time. <laughs> um, hmm. I don't. I don't know if I'd make a good role-playing game character. I think that I like. I like. I like life a little too boring. I want to talk about how good the steak is a little too much. <laughs> um, in True. my in actual life. Um, I had a blast playing Olivia, uh, the ghost character that I played in our Monster Hearts game. That right. was cool, but you know, how much you, you can't really live teenage angst forever. I guess you can if you're a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, um, you could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's pretty good. So, how many role playing? You know, I wouldn't mind being Beast. I played Beast in the Marvel Heroic. I wouldn't mind that. That could be cool. I could maybe do that. <laughs> All right. 
Go on, you had another question? I uh, sure I've got a number of questions here. The next of which is, um, how many role playing books do you own and what was your first? Oh God almighty. We have I I don't even know uh, hundreds of role playing books. It's insane. Um, I'm sure that the first I had was uh, some of the probably D and D, perhaps advanced D and D players guide. Um, that's probably the first one. Um, I the Elf Quest role playing game, the Chaosium game. I remember buying that mm-hmm. as soon as it came out. Oh my goodness, I have some. Anyway, um, what else? Those, I think those are the first two. Like that, I remember buying myself. Actually, yeah, saving up your money and buying it. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Okay, and so, now, like, we have hundreds of them. I don't even. Yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Gets away from people. I think that uh, yeah. Donald last week was saying he's got, you know, he's got hundreds of them as well. He keeps them catalogued. I've got a whole bunch of them around the place, and they're in the. There are some in the basement. So I haven't counted them myself, but one day I will, so that I can I can answer the question. So your final role playing supper before execution. What are you going to play? Final. My, this is the last game I get to play before yeah, yeah. I die. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm totally going to play Apocalypse World. Right. Um. Or I'm totally going to play Thousand One Nights, one or the other. I don't know. Depends on how I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> well, last week Donald said he was going to play uh, uh, Donald Gardner episode 33. Said he was going to play play Dread, and I I posited this idea that in fact, as soon as you pull that uh, Jenga block out and the thing uh, yeah. uh, falls down, you know that's actually when you're uh, when you're actually executed. So just imagine yeah. the extra stress on pulling that brick out. Yeah, that I think you know we'd all die of a heart attack or an ulcer before we actually got there because that that series. Um, yeah, um, if I could, well, okay, the executed makes it pretty heavy-handed. Um, but if I could, if if the, someone came along and said, "All right, you only get to play one more role-playing game right. in your life," right. you know, and that it's going to disappear, poof, and you're going to have to, you know, go learn how to grow potatoes or whatever. Right. Um, if I could play one, I think I would. I have an I have an ideal game um, in mind for that, and it would be to play a thousand and one nights with a particular group of people right. in really uh, in a setting that was really set up for that, so we could have the wonderful food and right. the beautiful uh, environment and everything. Right, and then I could that that would be good. I could I could go I could go on happily growing potatoes. For the next <laughs> <laughs> so um we haven't executed you but uh, you've uh, you've slipped you've slipped quietly away unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately hell exists and, uh, uh-huh. and and you are sent there condemned condemned to play a certain style of game for eternity <laughs> um <laughs> what what would it be and why so it doesn't mean you have to pick a particular system because you don't like it but a particular type of game that just drives you up the wall um god anything where it's got really heavy accounting to do right uh, like where you've got a charts and charts and charts and filling out this bubble and filling out that bubble and it takes you know you have a round of movement that takes an hour to get through nice yep <laughs> um, uh, 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 can you go back and execute me now <laughs> so who would you be playing with then I don't even want to know <laughs> whoever they are I can, all right I play that. I don't know. Uh, people who like that sort of thing, I guess. Yeah. Last yeah. week, last week, Donald uh, said that he was going to be playing with uh, Damon Wayans and uh, Jim Belushi because they'd both be trying to, <laughs> to out funny each other, and none of them being being funny at all. Is there anybody uh, in particular they wouldn't want to play with? Uh, Mitt Romney. <laughs> it's interesting you, was, you said because I was actually going to. My suggestion was going to be perhaps you wouldn't want to play with Mitt Romney. So isn't that I interesting? Do. <laughs> yes, you you have now tapped into my brain stream. Uh, yeah, I don't want to play. I don't. I don't want to. Not a single thing. Nope. <laughs> what sort of character do you think Mitt Romney would play? Um, I will censor myself in the interest of young ears that may be in the room <laughs> at some other time. <laughs> um, 
yeah, he's a control freak and he's, he's bad at it. And he has moments of, of having good ideas. I mean, he was governor of Massachusetts. I live in Massachusetts. I've benefited from some of the health plan, health uh, reforms that he instituted while right. he was governor of Massachusetts. Right. Now that he's running on the national stage, he's distancing, distancing himself like that from mad. Like, it's, it's just crazy stupid. Like, here's the type of character he would play. He would play the type of character who cannot remember where he is or what he's doing. He'd be, it'd be like having like severe ADD. Like, oh, no, I have this. Uh, no, I don't have my pickaxe. I have a sword. Oh, no, no, I have a rope. Rope. That's what I have. No, it's, it's terrible. Okay, so just there's just going to be the two of you then, just you and Mitt Romney playing it, playing a game of Twilight 2000 or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to be like throwing. Oh, even better, even better. You'd get all the way through, almost to the end of the combat, and then he would remember some particular fact, and you oh, want to go back and do the whole thing again. Oh, oh yeah, we got to go back. I, forgot, I have this. I have this spell. We don't have a spell. We just want a spell. So, what makes a great convention game? Great convention game. All right, so. What makes a great convention game is people who show up interested. Right. They could be interested in that game, or they can just be like, I just want to play something. Right. Um, either of those are great. I love, I've had fabulous convention games at PAX um, with people who don't play role-playing games at all. Right. And they come to the table with so few, they have no preconceived ideas. Because they're like, well, I play a lot of video games. What's this? Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. I like, I, I have yeah. It's really cool. It's really cool. And I've had some really great, great games. One of the first games of Cyron that I ran um, in a, like, Cyron is out. Because uh, Cyron came out in January and PAX was in March, PAX East. Right. Um, and I ran this great game for these three guys who had never encountered tabletop gaming before. And it was it was great. Mm. Uh, so that's one thing. Games got to fit the, the time slot. Um, if I have a one-hour time slot or a four-hour time slot or whatever, I need to know that um, the game that I'm running will will work in that time. Mm. And I need to decide beforehand whether the game that I'm running is going to be a full game mm-hmm. in a four-hour time slot. We're going to play an entire game of Siren or an entire game of Thousand One Nights or an entire scenario of um, Apocalypse World. That's cool if I know that. Mm-hmm. Or it has to be an awesome first session that makes you want to go buy the game and play more. Right. And I have to know beforehand. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Going in, as a GM, because that's that's that changes the the um, the energy behind the game of where the where the arc of the story is and, and how I'm pacing things. Um, oh God, atmosphere in the convention is huge. Um, so many convention games that I play, like Thousand One Nights is not elegantly done in a at a table among a sea of a hundred other tables when everybody's trying to yell over each other to be heard. Yeah. That's that's a hard way to run it. I've run it that way several times and people are like, Wow, that was great. And I'm like, Okay. Mm. I know what it could be. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so um atmosphere is a big one. I would love to see more uh conventions um acknowledge and uh, that need for a little bit more quiet Mm. it doesn't have we don't have to have like a hallway full of little teeny rooms but having quiet zones um, Mm. where it's like yes it's active play we're not saying don't speak here we're saying we're not going to have big electronic stuff we're going to have carpeting and you know you're going to play in a place where there's a little more sound baffling Mm. it'd be really great yeah, that is a challenge as a as a GM. I yep. know to try to create a a scene with a um, you know, with some sort of gravitas, or you know, you're trying to to convey a, a you know, create some suspense or whatever it might happen to be. And you've got somebody at the at the next table. <laughs> I've just created yeah. a character that's a that's a that's a pastrami sandwich, and right. everybody's yeah, la- exactly. laughing. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some places that that's worth fun. Like um, back in my, back in my day, you know, back seven whole years ago, at uh, the Embassy Suites in uh, at Pat, at um, Gen Con, right, had that because the you know it was set up to be little tables on heavy carpet with a low ceiling, and it was really good sound baffling, just because of the uh, atmospheric um, 
design. Hmm. And you could have tables packed pretty close together, but you didn't have that same sense of, you know, we weren't yelling over each other. So hmm. in terms of best con game, you know, it, players that are enthusiastic, a game that fits the time slot well, um, so I know that my what my arc can be, and some level of, of atmospheric support. Sometimes I can do that just by, like, you know, making it happen mm. like there being something on the table like thousand one nights is great for that because there's something on the table right. to focus and uh, gel that, that atmospheric energy yes yeah. yeah so what are your rules for and what are the best role-playing snacks what are my rules for role-playing snacks yeah. and what are the best role-playing snacks yes. um they should fit the game all right anything that you bring to the table should be to support the experience you want the players to have. Mm. Um, if you are playing a, a wonderful steampunk Victorian game with you know all kinds of neat Victorian stuff going on, mm-hmm. and you're having pizza and Diet Coke, mm-hmm. huh? <laughs> yeah, so jelly deals and uh, Welks then? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Or whatever. You know, figure it out. They, but one of the things that's true is that people love food and we love to eat. Mm. And we love to eat while we're playing. Mm. So I I challenge all of you, whatever you're playing, find some snacks that you like to eat that fit with it. Right. Maybe it is chips and dip. Maybe it is Doritos and Mountain Dew. You know, who knows? Right. Like, for me to be having Doritos and Mountain Dew, it has to be a very particular game. Right. Um, our first one of our first apocalypse world games, Doritos. Like, no, my character eats Doritos. They're they're like, that's rare fine stuff, and mm. I want it. You know? Yeah, yeah. That was cool. It's yes. Perfect. But um, yeah. So make it fit the game. Make it be delicious. Don't make every. Don't make one person responsible for it all the time. Everybody should bring snacks. Yeah, yeah. Um, be kind to the people who provide snacks. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Maybe they'll do it again. Yeah. All right, I've got a few, uh, not death matches, but um, what's your, your preference and, and how you feel about them? Gandalf versus Dumbledore. Gandalf, hands down. Why? Because he's Gandalf. Um, so Dumbledore is great. I have nothing against Dumbledore. Um, he has moments where I'm like, this is an interesting choice to make in running a school. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, not what I would do, not what I would yeah, but anyway, um, Gandalf has a, a I don't know, I just like him better. I think he has a more interesting story arc. Right. I know that might be odd to say, given that Dumbledore has all this stuff going on. I think he's, I don't know, I just like him better. All right. Harry Potter or Luke mm-hmm. Skywalker? Hmm. I, I don't know. See, I was... Luke just has this a little bit of, especially in the first movie, not the the anomalous, weird, aberrant first movie, but the actual first movie with Mark Hamill. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you gotta love him, but boy, does he whine a lot. Mm-hmm. Dad, I wanted to go to the farm. Or whatever. <laughs> I was like, oh, Dad. Or I guess it's not Dad. It's Uncle Owen. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> This droid's not good. <laughs> oh, my God, he's just whiny kid. And so, you know, Harry doesn't whine. But I, that's cool. I'm cool with that. I think that, uh, I think, I think I like, I, I like that. I like Harry Potter about in that just fine. I think that later on, it's weird. Like the first three Harry Potter books, I like them a lot. Then they get weirder and weirder and weirder. And I'm like, what? Really? Um, same with the Star Wars movies. The first three, like the real first three that came out in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. they're well, all right. I'm all there. Mm-hmm. The second trilogy, I just have so many problems with those. Ugh. <laughs> okay, here's, okay, here is my one, my biggest complaint. It will be brief, I promise. There is no chemistry between Hayden and um, uh, Natalie Portman. There's no chemistry there. Um, And so beyond that, with all the money that they spent, they just, could they have given them an apartment that was an actual set? 
so right. much of that was blue screened that they had nothing to do. It was a completely sterile, dead set. Hmm. And as a as a person who's done properties for plays, uh, you know, a lot, hmm. that is a, a really challenging thing to do to your actors, yeah. and it it shows on screen. There's mm. nothing for them to do. They're like, here's a couch, sit on it and have this meaningful conversation. There's mm. nothing to clue them in the set of what their life is like, of what yes. they're what's going on for them, of where they right. are in space. Right. And you know, emotionally that's anyway, so that's my big my big thing there. Yeah, oh, Moving that, on. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't don't move on because that kind of goes uh, a little bit to what we we're talking about. You know, the snacks fitting the fitting yeah. the fitting the bill. You know, just even if you want to create an extra layer, then just even a little bit of concession to the story you're actually trying to. I mean, no, it is um, fictitious. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you can bring just a little couple of visual cues for people, because for the most part, as the as the as the GM, um, if you have if you're playing that style of game, people are going to be generally looking in that area uh, towards mm-hmm. you. So if you can mm-hmm. lay out a couple of little MacGuffins on on the front of you, or, or even dress and character, or have something that sort of keys gives people an opportunity to sort of put themselves in that mindset subconsciously, and I think that's a great way to to encourage buy-in for your um for your for your characters, um, for your players. Yeah, yeah. Him, like I may have mentioned this in the other, um, in the last episode, previously on, um, <laughs> where we were playing. Vincent was running um, this the cyberpunk uh, campaign in college, and you know it was great. But one of the things he did was uh, there was atmospheric music, mm. and there was one that I still remember where every every session there'd be two or three objects in the center of the table um, that were heavily atmospheric. And one time there was a broken wine glass, a bunch of rose petals, and some burnt matches. Right. I really remember that. Yeah, and, yeah. like, for my Apocalypse World game that I ran last year, I had a collection of stuff, and I made a different, you know, object of focus, if centerpiece sounds too girly. Mm-hmm. Um each time that referenced, like, okay, this is all going to be about this rust and this train. Mm. Um, this time we're going to be dealing with this string of beads, you know, not not actually, but, you know, metaphorically, mm. this string of beads and how it's all intertangled around all of these different spiky objects. Right. You know, just give people something to focus on. Because this is another thing of why people fidget with dice. Yes. People fidget with dice because they, it, it it's a way to... Uh, switch what you're focusing on it with your brain mm-hmm. um, and to deal with visual things versus verbal things versus written things and also to do something with your hands and also to avoid staring at people waiting for them to do a thing yes yep for sure or just sitting there sitting there not doing anything well what you're when you're what you're doing is very active if you're actively listening right um, and by giving some giving people a place to look you know, putting something on the table that says, look here, mm. that will help support the atmosphere of the game and it will help them in that process. If, for sure. Uh, that um, you know, that was one of the things that was uh, big in the White Wolf games. You know, they gave all these like, sections mm. of text um, you know, from songs and so forth to help evoke an atmosphere for the passage to uh, to follow. But also one of the, the things they said, I think it might have been the Storyteller's Handbook for... Um, for vampire, but it may have been in the main rule book as well. You know, talking about the use of atmospheric music and you know drapes over your um, sure. over your lamps and you know like yeah. and and um, I think it might have been uh, yeah. Well, Lillian uh, Cohen Moore, episode thirty-two, was talking about you know they one of the games she was running was was somewhere where it was very, very they were in a, a, a damp uh, basement and she, she turned the air condition the uh, the heat all the way down so that it was you know cold, cold. and yeah yeah that's right to help sort I of dig that yeah to sort of to to buy into to you know get a little bit more uh, a little bit more buy in. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I think anything like that is is, is good too. But uh, going again to what we're talking about, you know, picking things up and fiddling with, with things and, you know, sort of connecting with, with the story. Um, mm-hmm. And then going back also tying into what we were talking about with, with Star Wars and there being blue screens and people sure. not having stuff to, to come off. Um, I'm not a, a huge fan of uh, the characters that Dustin Hoffman uh, play, mm-hmm. uh, that plays, but... Mm-hmm. 
I was watching Stranger Than Fiction um, mm-hmm. when it came out. It was at the cinema, and all, and it was it was during that film that I discovered what a what a great actor he was, and also what one of the great things that great actors do. If you if you watch him in that movie, he's not he he. First thing is he's a very gracious actor. It seems because he doesn't he doesn't steal the scene from from Will Ferrell, who I have to say was good in the movie, but he comparatively isn't mm-hmm. as an acting lightweight and you didn't feel like he yeah. was getting he was getting acted off the screen isn't but that if, exactly if, true I, I i actually very much like that movie and mm, you're, I do you're too. so you're so right about that that the graciousness that they have that um, dustin hoffman has in those interactions and you are dead on and that's a, a good lesson for players go on yeah and and the other thing that i that i watched you know when it was at the acting because then i sort of started thinking about the the acting itself and it didn't i didn't get myself so out of it uh the story that, that i uh you know the fourth wall was broken but if you mm-hmm. just watch what he does in the scene watch the way that he interacts very subtly with you know like he the way he does with his coffee cup and all the little mm-hmm. things that he does it makes you believe that you know like he's actually that guy actually in that room actually mm-hmm. doing that stuff and that Again, that reinforces, you know, Will Ferrell's uh, Will Ferrell's performance or, the, or, or what's going on in the scene. And if and if you look at um, actors in um, or good actors anyway, if you just watch right. the things they don't say, just the little things they do, the way they interact with their scene to make it more believable, they are actually mm-hmm. there at that time doing that thing. And that's one of the things about the initial Star Wars movie because none of those sets were real. The, mm-hmm. the subconsciously, even you know, the actors are not interacting with anything. No, that, that, that's in the room, and and so it feels you know sterile it in comparison. Flat. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, and that ties back to the beginning of our conversation this evening about um, where we interconnect with other players. You know, there, if there's no connective thread, if there's no set, if there's no setting, if there's no shared fiction to give us a network to react to, to work in, to whatever, be supported by. It's gonna be more flat, and this is why one of the things, like you know, from putting some object of focus on the table to really encouraging people to um, use descriptive tech, the descriptive stuff in their um, when they're talking, in, in, tell, tell me, tell me what your character's feeling. What does it? What is the texture? What is the smell? Tell me about all the sensory input. Help me really, really understand this world in a full way, because then we are interacting with a completely dressed fictional setting. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, Hermione Granger or Buffy yeah. the Vampire Slayer? Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. Um first couple seasons like so up until the the first time she dies i <laughs> love buffy totally just love it it's all all about it it's great hermione's fantastic i think she i think again the first three books excellent portrayal of a smart resourceful girl um really don't mind that at all um i i think that might be the toughest choice yet but i think right now i'm gonna go with buffy because of probably just having finished monster hearts right yeah fair enough indiana jones or john mcclain from die hard oh indiana jones no contest yeah die hard's awesome i don't mind die hard but the scene in Indiana Jones... All right, so you asked me about two characters, and I'm going to talk about a different character. The scene in, the, in, in Indiana Jones um, where she just chews him out in the bar. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love that. Yes. Love it. You know, she, it's so... It, it's a dressed set. They're totally human mm. in that moment. And yeah. she is pissed off. Yes. And and he's reacting in mm. a really, like, genuine way. It's It's... It's good. I like it. Okay. Well, then Indiana Jones or Han Solo? Solo. (laughs) Oh, duh. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah. He maybe, you know, he he likes to dodge commitment. Mm. But, you know, he's Han Solo. Yeah, so um, the biggest betrayal was the uh, Han uh, shooting after Greedo? Forget that. Yeah. Come on. Uh, Yes. Completely. Like, no, Han shot first. 
so just going back to what you said about there being no uh, there being no chemistry between uh, between Hayden Christensen and um, yeah. Natalie Portman. How did you feel about the chemistry between uh, Mark Hamill and uh, Carrie Fisher and the fact they were actually brother and sister? In it that? was so cute. <laughs> it was so cute. Like it was cute. It was cute, and it was. I don't know. I don't know whether they knew at the time that oh, the actors did. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure that you know our friend the internet will tell me, mm. but um, I, it was it was kind of fumbly and cute, you know. Mm. Mm. Uh, it never really it wasn't there any sort of like deep passion. It was just like mm. the, you know they're seeing if there's a thing there. Mm-hmm. Turns out there's not a thing there. But that's okay. <laughs> there's a different thing there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so the Battle of the Bad Guys, and the last one. Boba Fett versus the Terminator. I don't know. Boba Fett's way more interesting. Um, I think. Terminator is... A, you know, he's there for the other characters to act against. Um, he's there to point out the necessity of um, the the time travel and the necessity of... Necessity of the rebellion and all these other things, um, which is fine. Um, Even in the second film, I think I haven't seen the third, and it's been a long time since I've even seen the first two. Actually, hmm. I, I, th- I don't think you'd see, need to see the third, but I think that, yeah. that uh, <laughs> I think that that that's the se- here. <laughs> well, I, I'm actually excited. To, I don't know if you've heard about this that they're they're um, they're remaking Highlander. Interesting. All right. And some suggestion that's going to be Ryan Reynolds that's playing uh, Connor McLeod. Okay. Sure. And did you have you've seen have you seen Highlander? Oh God, it's been a forever long. Yeah, like I when it was new. Did uh, you see the second ago. one? I don't think I ever did. No. Oh well played. I managed to avoid seeing the the second one as well. So in my head, the the film was still perfect. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm interested interested to see there how that's going to go. The only one. That is why we can't have the second one. <laughs> that and that's right. And that's what worries me, because if they remake it, are they going to make it with an eye to it being a franchise? And if yeah. so, it's going to lose the great. You know that great. Um, Con- self-contained, you know, tale there is, you know, like it starts here and it finishes there, yeah, and like you yeah, say, exactly. there can exactly. be only one, right? That's the thing, like that, um, I don't know if we talked about that last, that, another thing about story arcs, and, you know, something that's self-contained, recognize mm. that it's self-contained. Yes. You know, make an awesome movie called Highlander, which has this great fiction and stuff going on, and it's all fine, and then be done and go do something else. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they're, the, the desire to serialize and monetize Yes. Things that really were great as a one-shot thing. Yep. You know, it's not cool. It's, it's it creates messy problems and disgruntled fans and you know, stalking and you know, all kinds of things. <laughs> so, if you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? One. Ro- um, if I had one role-playing related wish, okay, this is very topical. Um. I think it really is. It goes back again to earlier in the conversation. Um, I wish that if that, pe- that I, I wish that people would, would play more games and talk about them enthusiastically on the internet. I wish that people would, um, if people want to see more games by women or people of color or people of you know people from different countries than their own or people of different uh, sexual orientations or expressions or whatever than their own, that they would seek out games by those people and play them and talk about them enthusiastically. Ladies and gentlemen, McGay Baker. That's it for episode 34 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. This weekend, or perhaps even as you're listening to this episode, I will be at Big Bad Con at Oakland, California. At the convention, I'm hoping to record a number of questions with a number of different guests, which I'll chop together to make up episode 35. So until then, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.